Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. Hey, Jim, it's awesome to have you on. Thanks for uh, spending some time with me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's my honor. So, Jim, why don't you, you know, give the audience uh, just a brief background in your career in the entrepreneur space? I was summarily dismissed from Coca-Cola at the age of 24, thought I was going to be there forever, and they decided otherwise, and was completely devastated. I was as corporate a man as you could be at that young age and wanted a corporate career. And one of the last things they told me at Coca-Cola was that I would be a great entrepreneur, and I never heard the word and didn't know what it was. But I did that. I went out and started my first business when I was 25, grew it to 700 employees. It was in the children's education space. At 31, started teaching at a university and was a university professor with a small P, not a PhD guy, but the one who actually taught all the classes for 10 years. And during that time, came up with some interesting philosophies on entrepreneurship that I hope we can talk about today. And wrote a book about that called School for Startups, which was published by McGraw-Hill and it sold really well. That turned into a radio show. And here we are today. You've done it all, sounds like. A little bit. You ready to to hang up the the boots? Call it a career? Uh, I'm one of the people that would get bored in like 10 seconds. And I don't like golf and (laughs) those sort of things. So I think- That's that's part of my argument is, you know, even if you do like golf, Right. I, I think that, you know, humanity, just the, the human being, especially one that has experienced entrepreneurship and creation in your space, understands that life doesn't end at 60, 70, 80, or, or 90. It ends when it ends. And production, whether it's uh, business or mentorship or consulting, creates that livelihood in, in people. But yeah, let's get into some of the nature of your books and the business that you're a part of and what you've experienced over the years in regards to what is now from the times of Coca-Cola till now, I mean, everybody knows what the word entrepreneur is. Okay. So maybe from that then until now, just what your experience has been seeing what is possible for those that have an entrepreneurial vision. Well, the thing I would really like to focus in on today is some of the myths that I have seen. And if we could absolutely the perception of some of those, you know, the biggest myth about entrepreneurs is that they are risk takers mm-hmm. and that you have to be this risky guy. Well, maybe there's three things to entrepreneurship. You're creative somehow, you're somehow risk excited, and you're going to do something risky. And number three is that you have some sort of passion for what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's become sort of the definition of the entrepreneur. Yep. I'm a risk taker who found a creative idea to start a new business that I'm really passionate about, and I believe I can make a lot of money with that business, something mm-hmm. silly like that. And I find that because of that, we have lots of people sitting on the sofa who are not trying entrepreneurship because they're afraid of one of those three things. One of those three things is preventing them from becoming an entrepreneur. And I find that all three of them are completely false, that entrepreneurs are not risk-taking people. As a matter of fact, I do every single thing I can think of to reduce risk before Mm -hmm. I start a business. Mm -hmm. And if there is risk, I don't start the business. I start the less risky ones. And the more entrepreneurs that I meet, the ones people I interview, it's the same with them. Risk is a bad thing. We're not creative. 93% of new businesses are copies 
of existing businesses. And that data comes from the London School of Economics. So pretty good source. But there's not really that many new ideas. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you find what someone's doing in Salt Lake City and copy and do it in Atlanta. There's nothing wrong with that. Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Mountain Dew, Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, Mercedes, Honda, Toyota. There are lots of me too companies. You don't have to be original to go be an entrepreneur. Just find an idea and execute the daylights out of it. Before you get to the third point, you know, in your mind, define what an entrepreneur is. Like at the fundamental level, you know, I have a four-year-old. So if you were talking to my four-year-old and explaining what an entrepreneur is, how would you describe it? You know, someone who goes out and sells things to people. Okay. A four-year-old would understand that. I have stuff that people want to buy. Cool. And that could be all sorts of different stuff. And so I I think the four-year-old would get that. Well, I think it comes down to, you know, how do you define selling, right? And so selling is the exchange of money for something that's more valuable than money, right? So in the context of your other businesses, or it's just improving. It's creating more value than was currently there, right? And if you seek ways to do that, I mean, I think that is the beginnings of that entrepreneurial idea is to improve whatever exists or to create something that doesn't exist. I don't want you to wait for something that doesn't exist because that creativity lightning bolt may wait until you're 90 years old. Maybe never come. So go start something now. And there's a really cool thing. Let me digress for a minute. There's this idea of the corridor principle that as you go down the path of entrepreneurship, the life of entrepreneurship, There are doors along the hallway, this path that you're on. You could never see into those doorways until you had actually gone down the path a little Hmm. bit. And because of where you are today, you don't have view that allow you to see the opportunities in those rooms. But by becoming an entrepreneur now, doing something very me too, not creative, but just running a really good business will then give you the opportunity. You you understand where I'm going with this. Totally. Yep. It's a beautiful analogy. And what it really says is that we should get off the sofa and start something now, no matter what it is. Yeah. And I kind of gave you an idea of what our theme and and what we're trying to talk about in regards to this season of the podcast. And there are opportunities all around to be an entrepreneur in that definition. I think that you're right. There's some fundamental things that scare people about being an entrepreneur or it separates that persona from who just a normal person is. But if you define it in the context of whatever environment that you're in, figuring out a way to be valuable to somebody else, right? The opportunities, once you have that mindset, I think the opportunities are infinite. I say that with my coaching and what I'm working on, I'm not really trying to create a hundred millionaire. I'm trying to create someone worth $3 million or someone who makes $300,000 a year. That's my goal, and that's my definition of success. You don't have to be lifestyles of the rich and famous, yachting, private jetting to be very, very, very successful and have enough for you and your family to survive on. So I think that's very realistic for everybody. Okay, so the first thing is you dispelled the idea that being an entrepreneur is risky, okay? And then you got into this, instead of doing the whole Peter Thiel, zero to one, creating something out of nothing, okay, that an entrepreneur can be somebody that just improves an existing business or existing process in a role that they have, right? 
Yeah, I know you were going to get into a third, you know, kind of a third point or, or subsequent points. Would you mind picking up where you left off? That would be passion. So there's this overwhelming belief that you have to be passionate about what you sell. And I would counter that. I've sold purses. I've sold leather jackets. Mm -hmm. I've sold a lot of stuff that I don't buy that I would never buy. And I must tell you that that doesn't bother me at all. I would like to redefine or refocus passion. I think that passion for a product is called materialism. I am passionate for the lifestyle that I lead. I am passionate for the fact that I drove four carpools today. I worked <laughs> when I wanted to today. I had zero commute today. I wore what I wanted to today. I wasn't responsible to anyone today. I made as much money today as I was willing to work to do to get that money. I am passionate about the entrepreneurship itself. And that can be enough for a lot of people. The joy of having an Amazon reseller business that you buy stuff on bulk and sell it on Amazon. I've seen how that simple, non-creative, non-risky business that no one should be passionate about can change people's lives and change their perception of themselves. And so I'm passionate about the opportunity that it presents. And here's the really cool thing. I don't know if this will offend you or any your audience, Patrick, but I believe God gave us a certain basket of skills when we were born, when our DNA was created. We're good at this and not good at some other things, and I'll never be able to throw a baseball. But entrepreneurship uses those skills better than anything else could. I could still work at CEO and my creativity would not be utilized. I could still work at Coca-Cola, I mean, and not use the skills that necessarily are used by my entrepreneurship. And that's exciting to me. Overall, I think that just being an entrepreneur is cool enough that I don't have to love what I'm doing. I have enough fun selling purses that I'm willing to sell purses if I can make some money doing it. All right. So let's break down then kind of the stereotypical like entrepreneur archetype, right? And the entrepreneur archetype is, you know, that person that is beaming with what you're quoting as passion. Can you break down that one more time and talk about who would you consider an example of that passionate person in the stereotypical definition? And then from what you've seen, a person not necessarily having to be this overly A type of personality to actually go out and find something that they're either gifted at or interested in to pursue. You know, several different people jump to mind. I would think of an entrepreneur who is obsessively passionate as someone like Bill Gates and not necessarily in his first iteration, but in his second iteration mm -hmm. as a philanthropist. He is obsessive with that, and he's following his passion there, his desire to solve malaria in Africa. I think he's going about it 100% wrong, but he has a mm -hmm. tremendous passion for it. He's also very interested in helping education, and as a former professor, I'm not sure that he's doing the right things there either, but nevertheless, his passion there is laser-focused, mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, we have someone like Richard Branson, who I think that of the 700 businesses that he owns, he's probably passionate for three or four of them. The Virgin Galactic Airline, the Outer Space Vehicle, space. maybe still the airline, but I bet he's pretty tired of the airline and hasn't done any work there in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you know he's not interested in the thing that got him started, the stores anymore. I think that his passion is the love of the game. 
he's enjoying the game. Whatever the business is, he's going to have fun doing it and Mm -hmm. give it an interesting, sexy, unique twist, right? I don't think he loves all of those businesses that he runs. He enjoys the, let's come up with a new brand that exudes confidence, that's cool and sexual, and I get to jump out of a parachute or a hot Mm -hmm. air balloon wearing a parachute to promote it. He's enjoying the promoting it more than he is the brand. And you know, he never goes back to those businesses on day three. Mm-hmm. He's not there on day three. He just gets it all up and running and then hand, and passes the baton. Right. So those are two different views of entrepreneurial passion, right? All I'm suggesting is, is that if you wait to do what you're passionate about, it may skip you altogether and you may lose the opportunity to Go off and start a really great consulting practice, very similar to your last job. There's nothing creative there. It's just very similar to your last job and you steal some of the clients and you do the same work very, very well. That may not be your passion, but that may allow for you to do your passion three or four years from now. You know what I'm passionate about is woodworking, but I suck at it. I'm really, really bad at it. So what I've learned is that I can enjoy my passion on what's called the weekend and make more money so that I can go to woodworking school more often. Let's break down something that you said then when you, when you told me you were going to offend me, which you, which you didn't. You talked about you know, natural gifts, natural abilities. They were all different. We all have you know, different personalities, different strengths, different tendencies. Is there kind of a method in your, from what you do as a consultant or a coach? Is there a method to discover some of those interests, maybe not passions, but interests and figure out a way to monetize that through business. Is that what you were saying with that comment? No, I don't really think so. Cause I have a okay. hard time understanding those people, the people who at the age of 30 don't know what they're interested in or mm-hmm. what they're good at. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes me wonder what the hell's going on there. Right. If a eight year old doesn't know that I understand. Mm-hmm. But by the age of 30 or 40 or whenever, you know, you enter into the world of entrepreneurship, you should know, you know, I really need a business partner. I need a co-founder because I'm not very good at speaking in front of people and this business is going to require a lot of speaking in front of people and so I should go get a co-founder. I did that personally my first business I had a co-founder Doug whose sole responsibility was to talk and was amazing at it. Absolutely amazing at it. But But he was amazing at it and he probably liked it to an extent. You know, you didn't like it, even though you may have been amazing at it. So isn't that something like a a feeling or a flag or a hint of what you shouldn't do? Because I know you love woodworking, right? And there's obviously hobbies that are out there. But have you, in your entrepreneurial experience, like seeing tons of businesses, speaking, talking to a lot of people, is there a common connection fundamentally between what a person does as an entrepreneur and their level of interest? No, I really don't think so. Hmm. Oh, if, interesting. Okay. You know, if I am working so that I can go to Disney World, so that I can take my family on nice vacations, so that I can go to woodworking school, so that we can live the standard that we all want to live, to me, that is the ultimate goal. And I'm willing to focus in on that and say, I'm willing to sell purses if I can get toward that ultimate goal. And so for me, the passion is almost irrelevant. I Mm -hmm. am passionate about the lifestyle. You know, my friends go to work, they commute, they get told what to do. Their destiny is in someone else's hands. None of that is true for me. And that's what I'm passionate about. 
Okay. Yeah. And that, and I'm, I think I'm having a hard time distinguishing because I agree with you in, in that respect. And for me, you know, it's one of those things where if, if you sell purses to be able to go to Disneyland, maybe as a right now, is that something that will get you what you want? But long-term, if you're selling purses your entire life, is it possible? And I don't know. I mean, is it possible to really have a, a, a level of fulfillment that I think some entrepreneurs get? And that's where, you know, you go back to the Richard Branson, right? Which is like, he was probably passionate at one point in his life about his Virgin Records and then with the airline and then, and the passions just changed. And so as far as like the future vision, I look at those that get on a highway and commute every morning and hate what they do and then go home and try to just disregard all that crap and be a a good parent and a good husband or, or wife. I look at where we're at as a society and because of how much commerce is going on and opportunities that exist, that it's possible to find something that you like doing, that you make money at, but you're also able to provide some sort of fulfilling lifestyle for your family. So that's where I'm, I'm kind of disconnected. It's like, well, no, I, let me respond to that, Patrick. Okay, cool. I think that's largely where the corridor principle comes in. Got it. Okay. And there's an important thing here. One idea that we haven't talked about yet is that entrepreneurial things are created to be sold. Businesses are created to be sold. And the first business that I was involved in, childhood education, was an amazing business, but we had thousands of kids every day that we were taking care of, and the stress level was not enjoyable. I like my kids, but i that's it. I'm tired of That's it. That's where I draw the line. And so I got out of that business as quick, you know, within seven years, pretty much as quickly as I could when I was 31, 32 years old, which allowed me to go off and do something that maybe I did enjoy more, right? The experience gives me the credibility, the opportunity, the fundraising skills, hopefully some cash in pocket to go off and say, wow, you know what? I just had a business with 700 employees and now I really want to be a college professor and I can go do that because I have the credibility of having a 700 person business that allows me to do what I am passionate about, which is teaching and sharing and helping other people down the path. So again, I'm willing to do today to get off the sofa because that long term will lead to my goal of Hmm. eventually running a business that I love obsessively and fulfills my creativity and my risk and all of that. I just want people to get off the sofa and say, I'm going to go start something today that I can put up with because God only knows where that's going to lead. That's awesome. That helps me a ton. And I would add to that, the getting off the sofa idea, some people were naturally lackadaisical, but we're also naturally driven. So it's an interesting kind of dichotomy there. But if you look at the discovery process, isn't there normally like some level of anxiety or friction? or stress that tells us whether we're doing something we want to do or or not that eventually leads us to what you just explained? Isn't kind of the pain and friction and anxiety? I mean, is that environment part of the process? You know, I hope that motivates you to get off the sofa and start doing the research. One of my favorite stories is about my step-brother-in-law. His name is Joey, and he had a job working on a shrimping boat peeling in shrimp, taking care of freshly caught shrimp. So not Forrest Gump, but he he was actually working on the boat. He worked for Forrest Gump. Got it. Can't imagine anything worse. And his goal was to have a restaurant bar of his own. And eventually he was able to save $5,000. Well, 99% of our risk 
universe would say you cannot open a bar or a restaurant for $5,000. Well, he did it. He didn't even have enough money for kegs. He bought cases the first weekend. He sold those cases and made what's called a profit and eventually was able to buy half of Athens, Georgia, which is where University of Georgia is. He owns half of the town and something like 20 or 30 different bars and restaurants off of a $5,000 investment to get started. Right? Well, off of working on a shrimp boat, doing something he didn't like to do. Exactly. For him, the story, the interest is he was willing to say, my dream is to have a restaurant bar with all the brewing equipment and all of the brass and the, the beautiful fixtures. And it's going to have dark mahogany and the walls are going to be, you know, have leather embed in them and stuff. That's his dream. What he ended up opening was in an abandoned barber shop. It still had the linoleum floor. It had the big rings on the floor where the chairs used to be. Cinder block walls, exposed metal rafters, and a bathroom that didn't pass code. Hmm. He spent 4000 of the 5000 getting the bathroom up to code. He then went to a flea market and got $200 worth of abandoned chairs that we would throw away on the side of the road. And opened a bar, right? His standards were so low because the alternative of working on the shrimp boat was so bad that he said, I'm willing to take the long view on this and to put my dream aside and to start something that's feasible today. Well, it's not even, I mean, and you can argue that it's not even on the side. It's like, it's just, it's in the future and the path to get there requires that, you know, you have to put a lot of money into bathroom before you, before you actually get to the mahogany and the brass and what his future vision was. And eventually someone bought the piece of property across the street, put in $3 million into a restaurant. It failed. And the lesson is, how many beers do you have to sell to repay a $5,000 investment? How many beers do you have to sell to repay a $3 million investment? It's a really good lesson. No, it's a huge lesson. Yeah, sometimes it's bootstrapping is really uh, is really healthy and taking on big responsibility and try to circumvent steps along the way, which that restaurant across the street did. You know, but that's again, how you learn those painful lessons. So they probably had to go backward and then learn the lessons that Joey was learning. Joey also did something really smart. He reduced the risk. His risk was $5,000. And if he lost, he'd have to go back to the shrimp boat. But being able to rebound from that versus like bankruptcy on $3 million, right? It's a longer lesson to learn than having to go back on the shrimp boat and get another 5,000 bucks and invest it wisely the next time. Joey got off the sofa. Yeah. So in your book, so the School for Startups, is it targeted to just the normal individual or who's that person you were writing to when you wrote that book? The guy sitting on the sofa is Not trying to say... It can be done. And there's some stories in the book of some businesses that I started when I was teaching at the university. I bet my students on a semester by semester basis that I could start a business that semester, get it cash flow positive that semester, repay the startup capital that semester. And they got to choose the country and the industry that I would start the business in. The first one was Pakistan and furniture. So I had to start a Pakistani furniture company. After that, it was a Brazilian leather purse company. You oh, did sell purses. I told you the purses were in the story. The year after that, it was Argentinian painted leather for leather jackets and things like that. The book talks about some of those stories and talks about the rules that came out of those experiences. And the major primary rule is don't spend any money 
bootstrap. And I can go back and show you how all of the ideas that I had were not creative. So the Pakistani chair idea, the furniture company, most people look at it and go, that's a very, very creative idea. And I go, I can tell you the flea market that I saw the idea that I copied from. I saw the idea in Santa Barbara 10 years before I started the business. When I had to start a Pakistani furniture company, I was like, hey, Santa Barbara 10 years ago, I'm going to copy that idea and I'm going to do it for under $5,000. So very little risk, zero creativity. I was not passionate about it, but it was a home run success. You address that principle of getting off the couch, obviously, but also how individuals could be more entrepreneurial at in their current environment, whether it's a, a full-time job or in school. Do you give direction there? Yeah, there's some examples. There's a lot of characters in the book, real life stories. There's one of my students, I think he was a junior and a senior, who was making $100,000 a year on Best Buy arbitrage, going to <laughs> Best Buys as they liquidated stuff, buying $10,000 of stuff that Best Buy considered at the bottom of its life cycle that he would then sell on eBay and Amazon, make $100,000 a year doing that. Yes, those sort of things are in there. The book is designed to be very motivational and say, hey, if this 20-year-old can make 100000 what's your excuse? Yeah, seriously. Have you seen it, and if you haven't addressed it in the book, have you, have you seen it in other circumstances where you have companies that motivate or incentivize for, for that entrepreneurial mindset? I mean, I know a few kind of, you know, some tech or manufacturing where if you come up with, some improvement to the intellectual property they already have that you'll be able to profit share off of that. Have you come across a lot of companies that have maybe not to that extent, but similar incentives to be able to provide improvements to efficiency or of that nature? Well, I don't think you're going to like my answer on this, but my honest answer is, is I see that with every company until they have like 50 employees And then eventually that just becomes something that's written in the handbook that no one ever really looks at. And I think back on my own business, when I was running a business and we were doing like 12, $15 million a year in revenue, and I hired my brother right out of MBA school. And he came in, he was like, you should try this and you should try this and you should try this and you should Mm -hmm. do this. And I was like, done it, seen it, competitor did it, don't want to try it, don't like that. I, you know, I had a off-the-cuff response for every one of his bright ideas. And some of them we ended up trying, but a lot of them didn't work. I think that part of the entrepreneurial story is getting comfortable with what you do and then not wanting to mess with it. And that happens somewhere after $25 million in revenue or something like that, that eventually these incredibly creative entrepreneurial places that are designed with their DNA to bake DNA. And we're going to have a Friday creativity meeting every Friday with pizza and foosball. Eventually that gets shut down by the venture capitalist or reality, you know, eventually. And I just don't see it in the 10 year old companies. I see companies that claim that they're still doing it, but when you dive deep, you very rarely see that, but maybe I'm just a young curmudgeon. You know, again, the whole, I would just say life in general is never this like calculated path where if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to get A. And it's one of those things where sometimes there's great ideas, sometimes there's crappy ideas. And I was just curious because I've seen at a smaller level, as you were explaining, but I've also seen it at a, at a very high level. I'm at Honeywell in particular, they have a program and it's all 
calculated into the engineers. The guy that I was talking with was a graduate of, of MIT. Uh, and he made half a million bucks a year, like three times what his salary was just because of the processes that he created that allowed Honeywell to save a bunch of money. And he did some uh, level of profit sharing with them and had ownership in the IP. So it's one of those, like, I don't know, it's the environment and it's the principle, I guess, right? Even though that doesn't exist, I still think there's opportunities, right? For anyone to really figure out ways in which they can improve, whether it's a process, whether it's a product, whether inside the company, outside the company. But your point is to open your mind to those opportunities that are all around you and figure out ways to create more value for people so that you'll have more money. You know, it'll be interesting to see where Honeywell is 10 or 15 years from now. Because in essence, Honeywell is a, a startup. They were a huge high flyer of the 70s and 80s. And like so many other companies, they crashed and burned and are now finding a new niche for themselves, just like Xerox. And there's no comparison to between the business that Honeywell does today and what they did no in way. the 80s or the 90s. No Look at GE. I mean, exactly. That's Same story. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if Honeywell has still got those creativity DNA packets 10, 15 years from now. Yeah. And it's hard at a, at a high level when you have hundreds of employees, probably thousands of employees, you know, to orchestrate something like that is definitely, definitely difficult. But it's still, it's one of those, you know, I would assume that some good has come from those programs, but you also have brothers-in-law that have, you know, sophisticated degrees that tell you that you should do this with your toilet paper, right? Turn into have recycled toilet paper instead of, you know, the thick stuff, you'll save some money. No. So my, my point is, it's like, I don't know, I, I totally am, am in, in sync with you in regards to just getting off the couch and doing something. I think that provides just a level of fulfillment. And I would say failure sometimes and taking risk. People don't like that because they have a probability of failing. But I think if you, if you think about it, recontextualizing failure okay, is, I think, vital in the process because it's part of the learning process. It's part of you know, growing. Uh, you don't just know something and suddenly accelerate your path to perfection, right? There are these friction points, these failures, these dips along the way. And that's a good thing because I think the more of those you have and the more resilient you are, the more you're going to be able to create, the more money you're going to have. And so goes the process. Somehow I always forget to leave off my resume, Patrick, that during that time I had 700 employees. I also got $10 million in personal debt and the bank called and said, we're seizing all of your assets and you have 30 days to repay everything. I forgot to tell that part of the story for some reason. Well, that probably wasn't, uh, that probably didn't keep you up at night at all. That's the thing. It's like, if you have a freaking $10 million mistake, holy crap. I mean, talk about the lessons that you learned along the way. Now, obviously in the moment, you're like, crap, get me out of this. But you know, in hindsight, I'm assuming that that was one of your most valuable times. Yes, of course. I learned a lot. Learned a lot. 10 million bucks will do that, I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes. yes. Cool. Well, Jim, hey, we'll post all of your stuff. There. This has been an awesome conversation and you've been around the block a number of times. You speak. Do you do personal consulting and coaching as well? Of course. Okay. And then obviously with your book. Now, the book, which is the School for Startups, the Breakthrough Course for Guaranteeing Small Business Success in 90 Days or Less. So that's your only book at this point, correct? No, actually, I have another book that came out a couple of months ago. It's called Free Radio and Podcast Marketing in 30 Minutes. You know the Dummy series, Patrick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a series called In 30 Minutes. It's a series for people that the dummies books are too complicated. Uh, so it's a level below. <laughs> it's a level. But in 30 minutes, I teach you what you need to do to get on hundreds of radio and podcast interviews to sell hundreds of thousands of dollars of your product for free. 
So I have that book out now as well. You can read it in one airplane flight. And I would argue that that's not below the level of a dummy. I think all the complicated stuff is at the level below the dummy, right? Because I think it takes a genius to really take a lot of sophisticated information and simplify it so the average person can understand it and use it, right? I agree with that entirely. Cool. We'll post all those links. And then you're also maybe talk to us briefly about your role as the executive director of international entrepreneurship. What's that role? What's the purpose of that organization? I'll let you in on one of my little secrets here. That's a great loss leader, as Walmart would say. So that is a thing that I do from time to time. Sometimes it's newsletter format. Sometimes it's videos where specific people get information about levels of entrepreneurship around the world, what countries are growing, what countries are retracting entrepreneurship. But the main reason I do it is as a marketing tool for my speaking. I get invited to speak. You know, In the last five years, I've done India probably 10 times and Egypt wow. and Dubai and Korea and Japan and Brazil and Argentina and Chile. Well, I'm sure I'm leaving out some places. And all of that happens because of the business international entrepreneurship, which is really a marketing vessel for me. It's a faux business designed to get me business in other areas. <laughs> I'm well, not sure I should that's not a bad, I mean, that's not a bad thing. And obviously the principles of entrepreneurship, you know, don't have country boundaries. They don't. They don't. I've made a lot of money off of that. Thing. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been fun. No worries. No worries. Hey, it was great to meet you. All right, Jim, have a good one, man. It's good, uh, good talking to you. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.